is glorious in his saints. Welcome to the Christian Saints Podcast, where we explore the calendar of the Church through the lives of the saints and the remembrance of the feasts. I am your host, James John Marks, recording from the city of Kenosha, Wisconsin. We apologize for the low audio quality this week. We are traveling and do not have access to our ordinary production studio. This week, we are remembering the life of the holy prophet Jonah, who is remembered on September 21st in the Greek tradition and on the 22nd in the Slavic tradition. The book of Jonah, which recounts the story of his prophetic mission to Nineveh, for which he is primarily known, is read as the fourth of the 15 Old Testament passages at the Vesperal Divine Liturgy of Holy Saturday. This parallels the Jewish tradition of reading this text during the services on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur is celebrated on the 10th day of the seventh month, which on our contemporary calendar falls sometime between late September and early October. This may explain why the calendar of the church remembers Jonah in late September. As the text is only four short chapters, we will read the entirety here as we will make frequent reference to the narrative without reading the relevant passages as we go along. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled up a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God, and they threw the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call upon your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we do not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and whence do you come? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Take me up, and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried to the Lord, We beseech thee, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, 
and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and thou didst hear my voice. For thou didst cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood was round about me. All thy waves and thy billows passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out from thy presence. How shall I again look upon thy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep was round about me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet thou didst bring up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to thee what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he cried, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then tidings reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he made proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them cry mightily to God. Yea, let everyone turn from his evil and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may yet repent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we perish not. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which he said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, I pray thee, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and repentest of evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take my life from me, I beseech thee, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And then Jonah went out of the city, and sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade, until he could see what would become of the city. And the Lord God appointed a plant, and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm, which attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a sultry east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night.
And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than a hundred and twenty thousand persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Jonah is mentioned in several places outside the book which bears his name in both the Old and New Testaments, which help provide us with additional information about who he was, in what ways he acted as God's prophet, and how his life illuminates God's truth for us. As it may not be immediately obvious to us from the narrative in the book which bears his name, why we would consider Jonah to be a holy prophet, a thorough examination of these passages is instructive. There are two Jewish traditions regarding Jonah's family association. One has it, he is the son of the widow in Zarephath, who is raised from the dead by the prophet Elijah in the 17th chapter of 1 Kings, or Third Kingdoms in the Greek reckoning. Jonah is described in several places as the son of Amittai, which in Hebrew means truth. At the end of this narrative, the widow says to Elijah, the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The second tradition has it, he is the son of the woman in Shunan, who is raised from the dead by the prophet Elisha in the fourth chapter of Second Kings, or Fourth Kingdoms in the Greek reckoning. In the story of the Shumamite woman, when Elisha tells her she is to give birth to a son, she begs him not to lie to her. And as her child is dying, she reminds him when she said to him, do not give me false hope. Here again, we see the allusion to Jonah as the son of truth. In either case, such an event during the formative years would surely leave an indelible mark, which would single Jonah out as a prophet when he had reached manhood. Saint Jerome makes reference to the first of these traditions in his commentary on the book of Jonah. In the 14th chapter of 2 Kings, or 4th Kingdoms, we learn that Jonah was a prophet to Jeroboam II, who was the 13th ruler of the northern kingdom of Israel. The prophecy is alluded to, but not quoted, apparently having to do with Jeroboam II being the one who would restore the territory of Israel to its original borders at the time when Jeroboam I became the original ruler of the northern kingdom after the ten tribes rebelled against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon the Wise, ending the brief existence of the united Israel. Despite this favorable prophecy about military conquest, which according to the passage containing these allusions, the Lord allowed because he saw the ordinary people suffering, the text has little else to say about Jeroboam II, except that he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not guide his nation away from the idolatrous worship established by his namesake at the shrines of Dan and Bethel. This is clear when we recognize the prophets Hosea, Joel, and Amos also spoke the word of the Lord during this same period, which, among other matters, announced the termination of God's covenant with the northern kingdom. We are not told whether Jonah also spoke correction to King Jeroboam II, along with his one positive element, but given the message he was called to take to Nineveh, it seems reasonable to believe that he would not have been in conflict with his fellow prophets about the deplorable state of the kingdom in relation to their infidelity to God Most High. Nineveh was the capital city of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. 
This made it the largest city in the largest empire in the world at the time that Jonah was called to go by God Most High and announce its destruction. The text of the book of Jonah tells us the city was so large that it would take three days to walk from edge to edge. It was located in what is now the city of Mosul in Iraq, not far from the borders with Syria and Turkey. Perhaps we can understand the impression many have that Jonah's initial refusal to heed God's call to arise and go, to give the warning of imminent destruction, was out of fear of what this mighty city, full of idolaters and the archenemy of Israel, would do to him when he arrived with this message. If we consider our own reaction, if God had suddenly called us to go to Mosul during its occupation by the Islamic State to announce judgment and destruction. However, St. Gregory the Theologian indicates that he has been convinced by a skilled instructor. It is unreasonable to conclude a prophet of God would be driven by such fears. Rather, St. Gregory tells us Jonah attempted to flee from the presence of the Lord out of despair in realizing the grace of prophecy was abandoning Israel in favor of Gentile peoples. We see this in the final chapter of the book of Jonah, when in his frustration he seems to accuse God in his prayer, saying, That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and repentest of evil. This is the first of the deep lessons we can apply directly to our own lives, which can be gleaned from the story of Jonah. All too often we are eager to see those we perceive to be our enemies suffer God's wrath and judgment. We are anxious for evil to be punished. We lose track of the prayer we repeat many times a day, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We forget all humanity is made in the image of Christ, called to be growing into the likeness of Christ, potentially our brothers and sisters in Christ, and those we should be rejoicing to see repent and receive the gracious mercy of God. The only enemies we have are the demons who deceive us into sin. The only evil we should see is how much our own life is unlike Christ. Before approaching the chalice to receive the Eucharist, we pray the words attributed to St. John Chrysostom, Thou art truly the Christ, the Son of the living God, who camest into the world to save sinners, of whom I am first. Some translations into English have this as, of whom I am chief, echoing the words of St. Paul in the first chapter of the first epistle to Timothy. In our recent episode remembering St. Gregory of Utrecht, we discussed the contemporary misunderstanding of judgment as being ideas about determining right from wrong, rather than as action of restructuring reality to be correctly ordered. In the story of Jonah, we see a stark reminder of why judgment in this true sense is God's alone. Too often, our own limited perspective makes us unfit to see how creation is rightly ordered. This was true for Jonah not only at the end of the story, when he saw the repentance of Nineveh, but also at the beginning, when he sees his fellow shipmates as being capable of killing him in cold blood without a second thought, despite his obviously knowing full well that they are all suffering because of Jonah's own sin. It is worth pointing out these heathen shipmates, who have called upon false gods and cast lots to determine their fate, are more easily called to repentance than Jonah is himself. They are unwilling to throw him overboard until they have prayed to God Most High and made vows to change their lives if he will deliver them from the storm. May God make us like these men and not like Jonah, 
lest we need to be cast into certain death before we realize the error of our ways. We must never forget this story ends with Jonah so angry God has held back his judgment on Nineveh that Jonah would rather be dead. God forbid our own hearts should ever become so hardened against someone receiving their salvation that it makes our own harder to receive. A more clear lesson comes to us in the second chapter. Jonah has been on a rapid trajectory from being before the face of God, who is life, through subsequent descents to the west, into the bottom of a ship, and then into the belly of a sea monster. As we mentioned in our episode remembering the miracle at Colossae, throughout the scriptures, the sea is a symbol of chaos and death. Noah, his family, and the animals they bring with them pass safely through the sundering and recreation of the earth, as the garments of skin are a protection for Adam and Eve when they leave the Garden of Life, the ark is covering as Noah's household passes through death. In the same way for Jonah, he is both in the bottom of the ship despite the storm, and then in the belly of the sea monster despite the sea. Please note, we say sea monster here rather than whale or great fish, as a way to bypass the reactionary debate which has arisen since the era of German liberal theology in the 19th century, to either prove the story historically possible or prove the story to be undeniably the stuff of legend by determining what species of animal is capable of swallowing a man whole and also would not represent a fatal environment for three whole days inside of which to be. Such a debate fails to see the real truth beyond the facts, which is when one flees the faith of God one flees from life, and taken to its conclusion, this finds one being swallowed into death. Jonah is both in the realm of death, the depths of the underworld, and yet he is being protected. God has called him to a task, and despite his rebellion, God has planned for Jonah to fulfill his call. Much like the commandment to Noah's household when they leave the ark, being identical to the commandment given to Adam and Eve in the garden, God's command to Jonah is the same after he has vomited back up into the world of the living. The story up to this point has shown us just how old and just how universal the structure of the hero's quest is. Jonah has left home, gotten lost, cried, died, and is only then fully prepared to meet his destiny. But what has changed? Why is Jonah given a second chance? Because of his great repentance. The entire second chapter is Jonah singing a prayer to God about his realization, if God can save him from certain death in a raging sea, the belly of Sheol, the Hebrew word for the underworld, God can keep him safe amongst the people of Nineveh. In fact, this passage is such a powerful image of total repentance. This sung prayer of Jonah's is one of the nine odes which are chanted during the canon of Orthros, which is called Matins in the West, the service of prayer at daybreak each day. As we mentioned earlier, the entire story is read both during Jewish services on the Day of Atonement and during the Vesperal Liturgy of Holy Saturday, primarily to highlight this hymn of repentance, which is crucial for our reconciliation to God. In both the 12th and 16th chapters of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, as well as the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, Jesus makes reference to the sign of Jonah. In each case, 
Jesus is reminding those who are familiar with their own tradition, this is a story in which a servant of God Most High fails to repent, but the Gentiles do repent. He points this out to prophesy their own unwillingness to heed the gospel of Jesus, which will find such purchase among the Gentiles. He also reminds them that Jonah was down in the belly of death for three days, and indicates that he will himself be in the tomb for the same period of time. The connection here goes deeper than merely the period of time is three days. Jonah volunteered to be thrown overboard in order to save the lives of the others on the ship. Jesus goes to his crucifixion voluntarily on behalf of all who are at risk of drowning in the sea, which is to say Jesus came to save us from the power of death. As a result of this connection which Jesus himself established, which has been expanded and explained throughout the tradition we have received in the church, we say that Jonah is a type of Christ. Here we use the word type in reference to the practice of typology, which is a form of exegesis in which the Old Testament is interpreted through the lens of the revelation of Jesus as the incarnate God. The term comes from the Greek word used to describe the relationship when striking coins between the die and the proof. Another example of a type is the connection made between Moses' experience of the bush which burned but was not consumed, and the Virgin Mary containing the creator of all within her created body. The bush through which God speaks to Moses is the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, as a distinct human experience from the incarnation of the same divine person as Jesus. In saying Jonah is a type of Christ, we are in a sense saying Jonah has a certain likeness to Christ. Despite his apparent despair and lack of repentance at the end of the book, which can cause us some tension when considering this, there is a way in which Jonah is holy. This runs contrary to the manner in which our contemporary culture understands holiness, predominantly in terms of morality. It is not difficult to observe Jonah's moral shortcomings in this story. While we do see great repentance at one point, the story is, in the end, unresolved. And yet Jesus himself warns us how crucial it is for us to heed the sign of Jonah. The church has taken this warning so seriously, she has placed this story in the midst of one of the most pivotal services of the entire liturgical year. The Vesperal Liturgy of Holy Saturday, despite not joyously proclaiming Christ is risen quite yet, is the point where all the vestings are transitioned from Lenten black to Paschal white. The priest decorates the temple with handfuls of rose petals and fragrant bay leaves thrown about with reckless abandon while chanting the hymn, Arise, O God, and judge the earth. Just as Jonah does not repent until he is in the belly of death, we hear this story on the very brink. Lent is coming to an end. We do not have a moment to lose if we want to be truly ready to enter Pascha to proclaim the death of death itself with full joy. A saint is someone who has taken on the likeness of Christ. The word saint comes from the Latin sanctus, which is the common translation from the Greek agios, which means holy. To take on the likeness of Christ is to become holy. We must remember, however, the word holy is used in the ancient world to refer to something sacred, which has been set apart for the singular use of worship. We speak of the Holy Bible, Bible being a word which refers to a collection of texts. We are saying these texts are set apart as a tool for worship. It is not a book of entertainment. The chalice from which we receive the Eucharist is holy, 
not because it was forged of exotic alloys on the mountain of God, containing magic to heal and save, but because it has one use, to hold the body and blood of Christ. It is not something from which we ought to drink beer. The architecture of our churches are holy. These buildings have a specific design, which has a singular focus, to bring human persons into direct contact with God Most High. They are not a gathering place for politics, sport, legal proceedings, or even casual conversation. Perhaps these examples help us to see past holiness as a kind of moral aura. The chalice is not holy because it does not sin. An object cannot sin, nor can it be virtuous. We make the object holy by the use to which it is put. In this way, Jonah can become holy when we take his life and make of it something singularly focused on guiding us toward repentance and salvation. Another consideration when it comes to our assessment of Jonah is found in the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, where Jesus gives us the parable of the two sons. A father gives his two sons a commandment to go perform work in the family vineyard. One says that he will do it, but then breaks his word and leaves the task undone. The other at first insists that he will not do what he's been told, but then repents and completes the task. Even those with whom Jesus is disputing in the temple at this time cannot avoid the obvious truth. It is the second who fulfills his father's will by doing the work rather than merely saying that he will do so. Jonah fled from the face of God, but in the end he went to Nineveh and he gave them the warning of God's judgment. Again, in spite of the unresolved ending to the story, this choice by Jonah is the completion of his repentance. He did his father's will, which is a virtue, and doing virtue reflects our taking on the likeness of Christ. It is true, we are not told the state in which Jonah ends his days. Similarly, we are not told how King Solomon ended his days after his idolatry and his polygamy, but we have his wise writings amongst our holy scriptures. We are not told how Adam ended his days but we can see clearly in Genesis the stark distinction between the lineage of Cain and the lineage of Seth. Cain, the unrepentant sinner, finds ways around God's curse, establishing the patterns of human behavior which, to this day, spread death and chaos rather than order in life. Meanwhile, Seth's way led to Noah, who is so attuned to God that he is able to escape the unmaking of creation. How Jonah ended his days is not for us to know. Our focus should be on how our own days will end. After all, we are the chief of sinners, not Jonah. The third and final lesson that we can take from this brief book is regarding gratitude within our vulnerable dependence on God. In the final verses of the book, Jonah is camped outside of Nineveh, hoping God will smite the heathen after all. God tries to soften Jonah's heart by causing a leafy plant to rise up and give Jonah's heat some respite. But Jonah merely thanks God for his own comfort, rather than seeing the source of his heat as his anger at the Ninevites. Consequently, God causes a worm to eat the plant and kill it, exposing Jonah again to the hot wind of an angry spirit. God's final warning to Jonah is to become aware that he is more concerned about the death of a single plant because it gave him comfort than he is about the 120,000 human persons living in Nineveh who have been saved from their own ignorance. And if he cannot be glad for the persons, at least he should be glad that their multitudes of cattle have been saved. This passage reminds us of the account in the 11th chapter of the Book of Numbers, where the heathen living amongst the Israelites in the wilderness murmur and grumble about having only manna to eat because they have a burning craving for meat. 
This creates so much chaos and discontent in the entire camp. Moses cries out to God in fear of his life if the people will turn against him for leading them out into such a harsh way of life. God tells Moses to warn the people, God has heard their murmuring and will send them so much meat they will eat unto bursting. God's spirit blows across the land, quail alight all over the ground around the camp. The people, not heeding the warning Moses gave them, gather the quail into massive hordes. The text says that the smallest amount gathered by anyone was the equivalent of 2,000 liters. The feast begins, and before they can even swallow their first bites, those who murmured against God fall down dead. Throughout the Old Testament, murmuring, which is to say ungrateful complaining, is something which consistently brings swift judgment from God. There is something fundamental to ingratitude which makes it incompatible with being in God's presence. We are called by Jesus to take on childlike innocence. We are called to be like the birds who remain in the present with God where he has provided for them, not worrying about their provision for tomorrow. Jesus is one with his Father to the point that even when the divine will moves him to be mocked, tortured, and executed, he voluntarily takes it all upon himself rather than murmuring, why me? An additional lesson comes to us from the final book of the Bible which mentions Jonah by name. This is the book of Tobit. While this book is not found in many English translations which rely on Hebrew collections of texts, it is found in the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox collections, which rely primarily on Greek collections. It is interesting to note, preference to the Hebrew collections for translation into English goes all the way back to the Geneva Bible, which was produced in the year 1557. This seems to have occurred because of a diminished awareness of Jewish history during the Christian era and the radical disparity between Rabbinic Judaism and the religious practices of the Hebraic people of the Second Temple period. Unlike contemporary Protestant Christians, ancient Hebraic people did not have a universally accepted canon of texts that they considered scripture. Some groups held only to the Torah itself to be the Holy Word of God, and of those who included the history's prophets and writings, how many and which of these books they included varied significantly. The Sadducees who controlled the temple during the time of Jesus' life and the apostolic era held only the Torah. Meanwhile, it is clear from the writings of St. Paul, who was a Pharisee, he was at a minimum familiar with not only the Old Testament as we have it, but also texts such as the Book of Jubilees and the Book of Enoch. Whether he did or did not consider these texts to be holy scripture, he certainly held them in high enough regard to quote them and reference their teachings in his writings and clearly expected his intended audience to also be familiar with these works. Much of contemporary rabbinic Judaism exists in reaction against Christianity. Jewish texts which were quickly embraced by the church, incorporated into her services and liturgies, or used for catechizing converts into the faith, came to be seen in rabbinic Judaism as problematic. Consequently, the collection of texts, known as the Masoretic, which comprised the Holy Scriptures in rabbinic Judaism, excluded these books, which had been embraced by Christianity. Operating on the assumption Hebrew versions of the text would be older and more accurate than Greek translations, early Protestant translators into English worked from the Masoretic collection. Somewhat ironically, because the Greek versions of the texts have been preserved in the Orthodox Church for two millennia, these are actually older than the Masoretic, and contain not extra books which have been added in, but rather retained books which the later tradition removed. 
the Roman Catholic Church did not stop using their Latin text, which had been taken directly from the Greek until well into the 20th century. And so this is how these traditions have books such as Tobit, Judith, anywhere from one to four books of the Maccabees, and others, while Protestant translations do not. These texts are not apocryphal, as they were never hidden, at least not by Christians. In the 14th chapter of Tobit, the title character, his sight restored, his son safely home and married, warns the young man like this. My son, take your sons. Behold, I have grown old and am about to depart this life. Go to Media, my son, for I fully believe what Jonah the prophet said about Nineveh, that it will be overthrown. But in Media there will be peace for a time. Our brethren will be scattered over the earth from the good land, and Jerusalem will be desolate. The house of God in it will be burned down and will be in ruins for a time. But God will again have mercy on them and bring them back to their land, and they will rebuild the house of God. We know from history the city of Nineveh was, indeed, destroyed as the Neo-Assyrian Empire collapsed in the early 7th century BC, most likely falling to the newly emergent Neo-Babylonian Empire, which would go on to drive Judah into exile. By the time of Xenophon the Greek in the middle of the 4th century BC, the site where the largest city in the world had once stood was completely devoid of inhabitants. God does not change. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and declare God's judgment. Despite the repentance of the city we see in the story, we know from other passages in the scriptures the Assyrian Empire did not actually cease to be idolatrous and come to worship God Most High. They remained an enemy of the northern kingdom of Israel, and after ultimately conquering them, not only drove their people into exile, but they forced them to relocate and to intermarry, giving rise to the Samaritans. We get a sense of just how distorted the memory of right worship is for these people when Jesus speaks with the woman at the well, and she gives not only a deeply withered understanding of who the Messiah will be, but also points to the endless dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans over whether God Most High must be rightly worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim. Jonah was concerned that he would look like a liar, or worse still, God would look like a liar, when he proclaimed the judgment, and the judgment did not come. But in the end, as it always is, the word of the Lord was fulfilled. We often wonder when the day of the Lord will come, and why it seems to be taking such a long time. We should heed the fate of Nineveh, and recognize our own repentance as the chief of sinners can give us many years to keep seeking, with God's help, to become more like Christ. It is taking so long because we need more time to repent. The Holy Prophet Jonah is a challenging character. Much which his story brings to light can be uncomfortable for us. Navigating what is true in spite of our own fallen perceptions and biases is a struggle it may take our whole lives to overcome. Let us relinquish the urge to have certainty as an illusion of control and embrace the tension which is so central to acknowledging we are vulnerable in our dependence on God, but in so being, we are the most protected and cared for we can be. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Christian Saints Podcast. This has been a joint production of Paradosis Pavilion and Generative Sounds. If this podcast has been edifying for you, please consider the entire Paradosis Pavilion catalog, as well as the music of Generative Sounds, both of which can be accessed via their respective websites indicated in the episode description. 
The reference materials and passages of scripture which were featured in this episode are provided in the episode description. All iconographic images used for our episodes, unless otherwise indicated, are presented by kind permission of Nicholas Pappas, who controls the distribution right of these images. Prints of all of Nick's work can be found at St. Demetrius Press, the website for which is indicated in the episode description. Please contact us through our social media channels if you are interested in providing us with feedback or engaging us in conversation, which we would welcome. We would humbly ask you to subscribe to the podcast at whichever publication service you are utilizing and would also request you share this podcast with those you care about in the hope as many people as possible may have their spiritual lives enriched through a fuller awareness of the church calendar. Please forgive us our shortcomings and pray for us. We will conclude with the Troparium and Kentuckian, which are sung to the Holy Prophet Jonah. We celebrate the memory of your prophet Jonah, O Lord. Through him we entreat you, save our souls. Enlighten by the Spirit, your pure heart became the dwelling place of most splendid prophecy. For you saw things far off as if they were near, therefore we honor you, blessed and glorious prophet Jonah. Father's, O Christ our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen.